You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Episode 181 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for this week. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today is Nathan Gilmore, who's an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, have you recovered from our 10 rounds last week? You thought that was 10 rounds? <laughs> well, I'm <laughs> counting the five during the show and the five after the show. <laughs> fair yeah. enough, fair enough. Also joining us is David Grubbs, who we, I think, really needed last week to mediate that fight. Uh, he's he's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Morning, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> would you have stepped in the middle of that, David? I would have had things to say, but I really don't want to reignite that. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair, we'll have to find something different to fight about today. Indeed. Well, our uh, our episode topic today is uh, Arthur Miller. I almost called him Roger Miller because I listened to that Roger Scruton interview on the way in this morning, and uh, apparently, uh, I, I you know it's a conflation. But also, wouldn't it be great if we had a Roger Miller episode? <laughs> uh, anyway, Arthur Miller's play All My Sons, and uh, the the uh, impetus for this is an email we got from a listener. So I'm going to read that email, and then we'll start talking. It's from uh, Brett Chase. He says, "CHP dudes." I have an earnest plea for a future podcast. That would be to have the three of you discuss the play by Arthur Miller titled All My Sons. It is a recommended reading on Nathan's aspiring seminarians list, but that's not the main reason for my request. I ask for this because I am actively recruiting the next generation of Christian humanists, and a podcast on this play will help that effort. Here's why. My son Baxter is 16 years old and a sophomore in high school. He's an aspiring musician, guitar and vocals, the lead sound manager for his high school's stage crew, and a budding intellectual of sorts. I've encouraged him to listen to your podcast, and eventually he had enough self-motivation to subscribe and start listening. (laughs) I misread that just now, and I thought it said (laughs) (laughs) self-mutilation. I'm encouraging him to embrace life as a Christian humanist, regardless of the specific vocation he ends up pursuing. That said, there's only so much progress to be made with a 16-year-old who prefers time on an Xbox One or a full day at a music festival, rather than reading heady books. That's okay, we'll take it one step at a time. Baxter is a huge fan of the band 21 Pilots. He recently learned that the duo are Christians, that they pursue their craft as artists who are Christian rather than as Christian artists. The story reported online is that one of the founders of the band was studying Miller's play and was captivated by the moral dilemmas explored by the work. I've not read the play, but reported, reportedly, and here's a big spoiler alert for the entirety of the uh, the play, uh, the 21 pilots that end up being killed by the defective aircraft parts was the inspiration for the band name. If this is true, how cool is that? I think we can include the band in the community of Christian humanists. Not only am I encouraging Baxter to read the play for himself, I'd love to direct him to a podcast from your show that discusses the play. I hope to use the band's music, the band's personal history, Miller's play, and your podcast as an example of the beauty and interconnectedness and the richness of a life of Christian humanism excuse me, for my son and his friends. It's just one example, but I think it can connect with him and plant some seeds that will one day grow into a life of faith and devotion to Christ held in conversation with the liberal arts. P.S. If you decide to do this episode, can you dedicate it to Baxter? That would be awesome. Have we ever dedicated an episode before? No, we can start. Hey, do any of you do uh, Casey Kasem? (laughs) Uh, No. Yeah, me neither. I mean, I I, I sometimes break into Shaggy, but I think that's one remove. (laughs) Yeah. This goes out all the way. I'm sorry, I don't do Casey Kasem. Zoinks! (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, sure. Uh, this is dedicated to uh, to Baxter Chase, I suppose, and let's hope it doesn't let him and his father down, huh? <laughs> uh, 
so All My Sons is not exactly an obscure play, but it is a distant third in the public consciousness uh, behind Miller's Death of a Salesman and The Crucible. Uh, typically, if you've read this one, you've read those two already. Nathan, you and I have argued many times about Miller, although uh, when I wrote the question, I, I hadn't considered that we were about to have the biggest argument ever. So maybe <laughs> argument, you, you and I have disagreed uh, gingerly many times about Miller. So I'm going to let you talk about where uh, All My Sons comes in his chronology and how it prefigures or fails to prefigure those two more famous plays. Certainly. The most important thing to remember about Arthur Miller is that he has a long and productive career. Uh, this play comes about a decade into his stage career, uh, and he continues writing and staging plays into the 1990s. Uh, so if you think about that, I mean, it's a, this is 10 years into a 60 year career, uh, that includes for those people who love death of a salesman, the way that I love death of a salesman, uh, the 1986, uh, film version, uh, starring Dustin Hoffman as Willie Loman and, uh, John Malkovich as Biff. Wait, uh, he, he directed that? No, no, no. He oh, wrote okay. the uh, screenplay. Oh, okay. Screenplay. Yeah, that's a great version. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't mean to say he directed it. If I did, I apologize. Um, so, uh, now the, the three plays of Arthur Miller that most people know, uh, this one, The Death of a Salesman, and The Crucible, uh, all come within a six-year span of each other, right there between 1947, All My Sons, and The Crucible, 1953. Uh, so, honestly, the, the plays that I know best, I, I've read a few others, but I, but not repeated times the way that I've read those three, uh, really kind of come there in the immediate post-war period. Uh, so, just trying to think if there's anything else that I want to talk about. Um, so, I mean, in terms of prefiguring those plays... Uh, I, I would say it's probably more precise to say that all three of the plays emerge out of a common moment in his career. Uh, it's not as if he writes this one and then 20 years later he does Death of a Salesman. I mean, all three of these uh, are rightly famous American tragedies, and they all come out of that post-war moment. And it is uh, one, two, three, right? There's, there's no plays between them? Oh, goodness. I, I uh, let, me, let me pull up his bibliography here. Uh, he actually, and, and I find this fascinating, I've, I've never read his version of it, but in 1950, in between Death of a Salesman and Crucible, he apparently did write and stage a, a, a version of Enemy of the People by Henrik Ibsen. That's right, I'm looking, I'm looking here, yeah, so. Yeah, so I mean, I've never read that, so I don't know if it's just a translation or if it is, you know, something that has more of Miller's fingerprints on it. Uh, if any of our listeners know, I'd be, I'd be glad to know myself. Uh, but yeah, I mean, pretty much these are three out of four consecutive plays, one of which is a version of Henrik Ibsen. Yeah, and then and then the other one some people sometimes read is A View from a Bridge, mm -hmm. um, which comes two or three, depending on which version you're looking at, years after The Crucible. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about this guy who had a 50-year career, All My, Sons is, All My Sons is his second play. The first is mm -hmm. The Man Who Had All the Luck, which uh, I have apparently read because I'm looking at my Library of America edition here and there are notes uh -huh. in it for it, but I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think it's it's pretty widely considered an artistic uh, non-success. But mm -hmm. to think that the, the, everything, basically everything that people know Miller for takes place in an eight-year period from right. My Sons to A View from the Bridge. Uh, uh, maybe 14 if you count the movie The Misfits, which, which is from 1961 in which he wrote. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it's really an incredible uh, incredible span of, or uh, amount of work for that short span of time. Right, right. David, you got anything to add to that? I don't have any particular insight on that, but it is uh, it is very interesting. I'm trying to, to think of what difference that might have made to how I read um, this play to know that they're clustered so closely together. Mm -hmm. uh, have you have you re you've read Death of a Salesman and the Crucible? Death of a Salesman, yes. The Crucible, no. The Crucible is the uh, locus of my argument with Nathan about Arthur Miller because I think I think the Crucible is just an incredibly hacky play. I'm much more familiar with your ongoing argument with Nathan about the Crucible than I am with the <laughs> Crucible itself. <laughs> Although when we're talking Crucible, worth noting Daniel Day Lewis, who played uh, oh John Proctor 
in the in the Hollywood adaptation of The Crucible, married Arthur Miller's daughter Rebecca. Huh. Well, there you go. Small world, huh? Well, there you go. Well, um, grabs the the setting is important to all my sons. I would say the setting is generally important for Miller. What can you tell us about the stage Ohio that Miller creates here? Mm. Uh, well, uh, I, it's it's very. Im- I, I think it's really important to to look at things uh, things like Miller's stage directions and his attention to the properties and the props and how the set ought to look and all that kind of stuff. He lavishes so much attention to that. Um, but the very first line is the backyard of the Keller home in the outskirts of an American town. So we're at the edge of town. It's a town. Um, we're in a backyard. So it's this, it's this uh, post-war suburban setting. Um, it's a house that was a really nice house to live in about 30 years ago. Um, it show, you know, it's, it's showing its age, but still well kept up. Uh, you've got the, the kind of suburban attention to your trees and your shrubberies and your flowers and all the rest of it. Um, very, yeah, not, not, not Mayberry, but I guess, uh, <laughs> father knows best. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, 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 it's that, that kind of setting. Um, neighbors are omnipresent and they're always popping up in, into your business. It's very uh, sitcom like, isn't it? People just kind of, just kind of wander onto the set. Yeah. They just drift in and out. It's, it's, uh, it's a, a small town, uh, a small town, a small neighborhood feeling in which, uh, there is no need to knock on the door or, you know, ask for permission. It's as if, you know, every conversation is just the continuation of where you were last. And so you can just sort of wander in and out of each other's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with the, uh, the neighbor who keeps trying to give, um, Mrs. Keller a, uh, uh, a, a horoscope. He just kind of randomly shows up and rambles about the stars and their wisdom. And then he just drifts out again. And you're like, what, a, where's that guy? Now, see, that's interesting because I, when I read this, it, it reminds me of my own neighborhood growing up, but it, it could just be that I lived in an idiosyncratic Arthur Miller esque neighborhood. <laughs> uh, minus the, the suicides I, I should go ahead and say, but uh, yeah, I mean my, my parents, <laughs> I mean to this day, in the summer at least, don't go into the house until after the sun goes down. And mm. neighbors really do just kind of wander, you know, in and out of our yard and, you know, the conversation just kind of rolling on. I, I I don't know if that's historically idiosyncratic, but it is certainly not the neighborhood I grew up in. <laughs> no. no, not 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 what I was not what I was accustomed to. Um still not what I'm accustomed to. Um also important to 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 note the the emphasis on generations of of connected families um living either living in this the same place or the ideal that they would um our our protagonist Joe Keller keeps wanting the 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 children of locals to move back and settle back where they uh where they were from so this idea of multi-generational continuity is um important to at least some people uh, in the community, uh, reference to card games. All right. The idea that, you know, they, they, they play poker or bridge or whatever it is that they play. Um, I can't remember that there's a, there's a specific game that's mentioned. Um, another thing though, is that they don't, in, in spite of all of the, the closeness and emphasis on, um, kind of easy fellowship and camaraderie, um, there's also a lot of hate and resentment, mm-hmm. um, but it's all submerged, right? Every once in a while, it'll peep out between two characters when they get into a bit of tighter conversation. But as soon as someone else walks into their sphere, uh, all that goes away and it's, it's polite neighborly courtesy again. So, uh, it, there's there's a kind of ideal look to it, especially towards the beginning of the play, but uh, 
unpleasant things simmering underneath become apparent the further you go. The the surface of this play is Father Knows Best, and the depth of this play is Rite of Spring. <laughs> right, I mean, right down to the right down to the the human sacrifice. Yeah, mm-hmm. which I mean takes place before the action of the play, but I mean still you you've got. Nathan, I think you have you have called us called uh, Miller uh, America's Euripides, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's I think that's quite right. I mean, there there is something yes. there's something primal and ugly lurking right underneath the set of this play, right? Yeah. And the, and also the gods will kill you, and they won't have any particular need to give you a reason. And, and I mean, in that way, I think all my sons may be bleaker than Death of a Salesman, if such a thing is possible. Because Death of a Salesman, all that sadness is right on the surface. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, here it's you're you're twenty thirty pages twenty thirty minutes I suppose into the play mm-hmm. before you really realize that there, that something has gone really rotten in the state of Ohio. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is Ohio, right? I'm not just making that up. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> if yeah, I, I, if I'm making it up, you're going along with it. Well, when, well, when I, I, don't, I don't have any good reason to disagree. <laughs> Well, when you when I, when I when you when I saw it written down, I was like, "Oh, okay," but I had no particular memory of a specific state being mentioned. But do keep in mind, this is literally the first time I've ever read it. Um, I've not, I don't have it memorized and mesmerized, as my grandfather says. <laughs> well, uh, the most immediate thing that all my sons is about is grief. Um, the Keller family is struggling to move on after the war death of their oldest son. And what does this play have to tell us about the way Americans deal with death? Yeah, but the particular characters in this play are in an ongoing dispute, really. I mean, from the very first time that characters walk on the stage until the end of the play about the proper way to deal with, again, a, a, a very sort of Greek tragic notion of death, namely the death that doesn't produce a ceremonial burial. Uh, this is important because uh, the eldest Keller, whose whose first name just slipped my mind, help me, Michael. I can't uh, remember either. <laughs> oh crap! <laughs> Joe? No, Joe is the father. Oh, Chris. Chris. Oh, 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 no, no, no Chris, no, 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 Chris is the one that's the dead, alive. Dead one is Larry. No. Is it not? Larry's the neighbor, isn't he? No, no, that no, the neighbor is Frank. <laughs> Thanks, well, Larry. at any rate, the eldest Keller. Well, <laughs> you, you guys start flipping through pages looking for this name. Yeah, no, uh, but the eldest Larry. Keller. No, it's, it's Larry. David's right. Okay, <laughs> so Larry Keller, because he died uh, in an aviation incident, uh, there was no body to bring back to the states. There was no body at the funeral, uh, and so you've got a, a number of different responses. You know, Chris Keller and Ann Deaver are really to the point where he is dead, he is gone, and it is time to move on. And, and, you know, to the point where they don't see anything ultimately wrong about their marrying. On the other hand, uh, Kate Keller, uh, Larry's mother, is vacillating all the way through the play between being unsure whether it is time to mourn, unwilling to mourn, even though she's acknowledging that he's probably gone, and positively certain that he is, in fact, coming back. Uh, and so, as she drifts in between those states of mind, the rest of the characters are trying to conduct other business as if Larry is dead and gone, and she keeps complicating that. So, in, in some ways, this is an idiosyncratic sort of death that they're dealing with. On the other hand, though, Michael's right to ask, you know, does this reflect the way that Americans in general deal with death? You've got a cultural moment, I would say, where people are starting to regard the passing of those who are close to you as something that, well, I I suppose they've lost a commonly accepted way to deal with it. Uh, So in other words, you know, people leave town because someone has died, and then when they come back, people aren't quite sure what the proper way is to move on with the life of those still living. So I, I would say that, you know, the on, on a literary critical level, you have to pay attention to the particularity of the fact that this is a missing in action military casualty. 
but in a more general sense, I think that that can stand as a uh, an allegory or a figure of sorts for the fact that the rituals that used to make sense of death and dying have disintegrated in other ways in the world of this play. Uh, da- David, I'm kind of flailing here. I mean, can can you uh, bring some order to this? Well, if you look at uh, the categories of reactions, you've you've got you know you've got Mama Keller's frank denial, right? Um, but other characters, uh, Chris, Joe, Anne, continuing to use the phrase "We have moved on." Yeah. All right. So that it's it seems as if these are the two main reactions. We can either deny or we can move on, and there doesn't seem to be some kind of, uh, well, the tree that was planted as a memorial right. blew blew over. So, you know, and you know, this is that's that's the opening move of the play. We see we see the we see the downed tree. You know, as soon as the curtain rises. Um, the the possibility of continuing to acknowledge the death uh, of that kind of that third term memorial has become really really complicated, as you say, because of the absence of the body, mm-hmm. um, and the inability to give uh, the proper rights and so forth. I, I keep thinking of Antigone here, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, to bring another tragedy in. Yeah, but I, I haven't I haven't had you know haven't been able to think long enough about it. But it 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 seems really important to me that the main two reactions are to either ignore the de- the death or or it, two ways of ignoring the death, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that's troubling. Yeah, you mentioned the tree. I mean, when you first when you first read the play, you think of the tree as this very obvious symbol for Larry, because mm-hmm. it's a tree that's cut down early. But right. but when you learn, in fact, that the tree was the tree was planted not when Larry was born, but to commemorate his going MIA. Yeah, uh, you realize that what's been cut short is their grieving of him. That the 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 repeated insistence, as you say, we have moved on, we have moved on, is is more trying to convince themselves. I mean, think about Annie. Nobody's moved on here. Right, right. Annie, Annie hasn't moved on. He died two years ago. Annie hasn't dated anybody else, and all of a sudden she's preparing to marry his brother. That doesn't sound like a woman who's moved on to me. Mm-hmm. Well, on one level, though, she has that letter. You know the the mere fact that she wants to that that she's con, that she's countenancing continuing to associate with this with this family, and treating Joe the way she does, having possession of that letter, I mean that's a certain kind of moved onness for her to even even countenance it. Uh, at least it seemed to me. Yeah, but I mean the fact that she's still dealing with the family suggests she hasn't moved on. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't moving on wouldn't moving on mean mean removing yourself from their circle of influence, forgiving them or not? But like yeah, to to, to be yeah. to be cons- even considering marrying into that family, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that also gives it a very old fashioned quality. I think the fact that one brother dies and she's going to marry the other that that suggests this takes place in a smaller town than I think it does. You, you know, it, it, that's that's almost nineteenth century. What's well, first century? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this Le- place from nineteen forty-seven. It, it's not. It's not that old. But like, mm-hmm. that that detail makes it sound like our town or something. Well, the suggestion seems to be that the people who are appropriate to marry are the people with whom you have these kind of deep-rooted community associations. Right, but you know, the first thing we see is that their roots have been torn up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, uh, before any of our listeners write in, I know that our town is also from the 1940s. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm aware of when our town came out. Um, in Act One, Chris Keller become uh, bemoans the difference between his life during the war and his life at home. Uh, it's a really famous scene. 
He tells his family that his entire regiment had been killed, but he says, They didn't die. They killed themselves for each other. I mean that exactly. A little more selfish than they'd have been here today. And I got an idea, watching them go down. Everything was being destroyed, see, but it seemed to me that, no, that one new thing was being made. A kind of responsibility. Man for man. David, how does that observation prefigure the moral explorations of this play? And um, do you think that Miller complicates that attitude in any meaningful way? Well, question one. Um, it it prefigures the moral expo- exploration of the play because the moral exploration of the play is all about where do you draw the lines of your sphere of responsibility and culpability and for whose good do you labor? Um, we've already heard, um, I mean, that, that's the key quote for quiz or quiz. Uh, I'm Elmo Fudd. <laughs> the key, the uh, key quote for quiz. Huh? <laughs> it's a key quote for quiz. <laughs> um, no, that, that's his, that's his, uh, that's his key quotes. Uh, that's his, his ethos there. Um, all for one, one for all kind of thing. And very military. If you, if you talk to, you know, pretty much any, any, uh, soldier who's, who's, uh, been in, uh, a hot war, he'll say something on the lines of, we were fighting for the person next to us, not necessarily for the overarching political or strategic agendas at play. Um, and that, you know, so what, what he's saying sounds like things I've heard. On the other hand, you have his, his father, Joe, who, for whom his responsibility, he draws that circle much more tightly. Uh, it's pretty much linked. It's pretty much uh, limited exactly to his family. Um, everything that he does is for the sake of his family, for the sake of, uh, keeping his wife in a certain degree of comfort and for the sake of building something that he can give his sons. Uh, we ha- we get this um, these little glimpses of Joe's much earlier life when he had nothing. And he, f- uh, he has this sense that, you know, he had nothing because he was given nothing. And, you know, having taken responsibility for himself, he's now being the big man and doing things for others, but still that circle of responsibility is very small, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you get the sense of someone who's, who could be very self-focused, but has a kind of self-conscious virtue about the fact that he is thinking about others, but that circle of others is still, um, <laughs> very, very tightly drawn. Um, it's in the, it's the title of the play. Uh, it's how you say the title of the play. Uh, if my, my first instinct when I picked up the book, um, or when, uh, when I, you know, when this topic was picked, if, if I had to read the, the title, having not read the play, I would say all my sons and the emphasis would be on the category of my sons. And I am referring to the totality of that category, all in category a, my sons. But there's that telling, that telling line towards the end of the play when Father Joe is reading the letter of his dead son, Larry, and uh, the, that line where he says that Larry viewed them, uh, sure, he was my son, but I think to him, they were all my sons. Mm-hmm. All right thinking of, of all the soldiers in the war and the, and all the, and all the men who died in the plane crashes. Uh, so that you're, you're actually having to read that phrase differently. It's not all my sons. It's all the category of all is being identified with the category of my sons. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so those, cer- those, those two, those two circles of, of responsibility are right there in that phrase and how you say the phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as complicating Chris's attitude, the main, the main thing that complicates, I think my perception of, of Chris as the moral voice of the play is 
other characters reaction to him as kind of a sanctimonious prig. Mm-hmm. Uh, other characters react to him as if he's kind of un, unsuffer, insufferably righteous. Um, especially the, the neighbor's wife. Yeah. She says that, that, that anytime her, her, her husband talks to Chris, he like wants to abandon his family and just do research for free. Yeah. Yeah. The, as the doctor's wife, I think it is. Uh huh. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So th- th- there is, there is a complication, you know, there are complications there. It's, it's, it's not as if, you know, Chris is the unencumbered, uncomplicated. Of course, he's the voice of conscience in this play. You know, that he he he's also depicted as flawed, and and other characters who 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 just can't stand the man's manner. Um, and also, he's critically wrong about some very important um, facts in the play, and as a result, brings his absolute confidence of moral certainty to bear and lectures on people that uh, taking positions that in the end turn out to be like 180 degrees wrong. Right. He, um, he stands by his father long after he should be standing by his father. Yeah. But you know, Alistair McIntyre and there's your, um, everybody can take their shot. Um, (laughs) Alistair McIntyre says the essence of tragedy is when you have two responsibilities that conflict with each other. Uh So and both I mean, of them are valid, right? So, so what you're talking about there between the the broader social responsibility and the the responsibility of the family, I, I mean, you you get one side of it with Joe, and and we'll talk about how you're supposed to feel about Joe in a few minutes, but you do get the other side when the doctor's wife tells Chris that you know he can't just go do research for free. He has to, he has a family he has to take care of, and, and I right. think you're supposed to read her claim as legitimate. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean even more than the, you know, the city versus family like you'd see in an Antigone, it makes me think of the opening passages of Plato's Euthyphro where, you know, before you get to the more famous discussion of what is the nature of holiness or piety, uh you get this, you know, genuine dispute between Socrates and Euthyphro about whether it is good and right to turn on your family for the sake of a more abstract justice. Right. Mm. And the, the abstraction's important there, right? Because really what – Chris's responsibility in the war is not an abstract responsibility. As David described it, he is turning from abstraction to concreteness. I'm not mm-hmm. fighting for the cause. I'm fighting for my platoon. Right, right. right. But, but, as, but it, as far as Joe is concerned, it's still an abstraction because it's not family. Right, which means I think we're being asked, we're being asked to condemn Joe for not turning from a concrete thing to an abstract thing. Mhm. Mhm. Well, and and that's that's the 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 thing at the end that uh there's a universe of people outside and you're responsible to it. That's an ideal. Chris didn't meet a universe of people. Right. <laughs> he met a group of other guys from other other parts of the United States that he wasn't directly related to. Mm-hmm. But for him, their their concreteness was enough to boot him from the the one particular sphere to ma- to make that move to the ideal. Right, right. Be, and and I, and, I, and I should be clear, I I wasn't trying to say that Joe was right that it was abstract. I'm saying okay. that that seems to be the way that Joe thinks of it. Oh, I, yeah. I think I'm just dragging my feet because I listened to your interview with Roger Scruton on the way in this morning. And, <laughs> and, and Scruton's reading of the of the uh the Good Samaritan parable, he talks about the there's the socialist reading and another reading, and the socialist reading is you owe this responsibility to everyone, and the uh, the other reading that he prefers is you owe you owe a concrete responsibility to actual concrete people who you you come across, and I, I wonder if all my sons doesn't doesn't put the lie to that. Hmm. Maybe, maybe, but I mean, I I think David's right that you know the same reality. Chris would name as concrete and Joe would name as abstract. Yeah. And I think they're both right. And that's what makes it a tragedy. Yeah. Well, um, Miller was a committed socialist at the time he wrote All My Sons. Our listeners are probably familiar enough with the critique of capitalism and death of a salesman. It is difficult to avoid there. <laughs> Miller's indictments in this story are not much less fiery than in that one. Uh, what vices does Miller pin on capitalism, Nathan? 
or, or maybe the better way to ask this, what virtues does capitalism make impossible? A couple things going on in the play that, that I'll set up before I start talking about capitalism in general. Uh, first of all, the, the main act that happens before the action of the play begins uh, isn't in a capitalist framework in the same way that death of a salesman happens. Uh, it is in the course of World War II, so it's this strange fusion between uh, national economy and private economy. So, uh, and 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 here's where uh, you know if you haven't read the play, go ahead and pause it. Although we've already spoiled most of it, uh, <laughs> but uh, during the war, we find out over the course of the play, uh, Joe's plant uh, stops producing whatever it was producing before and begins producing airplane parts. Mm-hmm. And they have a certain quota they have to hit because they have to get enough planes in the air to fight the war. And it is an extraordinarily high pressure situation where if they do not hit their quota, everyone in the play knows that the U S army would have ruined Joe Keller for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you know, this, this really is one of Euripides's gods coming down on him, making demands that you might be able to meet for a while, but eventually your foot's going to slip. It does. There's a batch of parts, and I forget what part it is. Again, I, I don't know why the details are escaping me this morning, but they are. Heads. Uh, okay, <laughs> it's heads. En- engine heads. Engine heads. Uh, this batch of engine heads is cracked. Uh, there is no time to produce another batch before the army shows up to collect them. And as we all know from our Athenian tragedies, if you don't have the right sacrifices ready for the gods, they're going to kill you. And so what Joe does is he has his people in the shop uh, fabricate a proper sacrifice uh, by cosmetic welding, essentially, making them look as if they are not cracked. The heads get shipped off. Uh, they get installed in airplanes. And, they've, and you know, over the course of the uh, play, uh, as, you know, Brett Chase's letter at the beginning of the episode indicates, 21 pilots die because their engines cut out while they're in the middle of combat missions. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, this is uh, capitalism as it happens in the real world, not capitalism as it happens in the way that, you know, libertarians talk about capitalism, you know, the completely unfettered free market, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are really dire consequences, uh, not only for, you know, disappointing the market in sort of free market terms, but also failing to produce what the army wants you to produce. All right. So that's all the background. What that makes impossible is for a decision to, or is for the capitalist, namely Joe Keller to make a decision that really only affects himself and his family. Uh, If he decides that he's going to tell the army, I don't have your parts uh, you know, there are very real scenarios <coughs> in which, you know, they simply don't have the planes and they lose the war. If he does give them the parts, there are really real scenarios, and this is what plays out, in which the parts fail and the army loses the war and people die. There is no good choice for him. And so, therefore, in a fairly straightforward sense, uh, Joe Keller only has bad decisions to make. Uh, and, you know, that is, you know, if, if, if you're familiar with uh, The Crucible or if you're familiar with Death of a Salesman, this is a familiar thing in Arthur Miller's plays. Uh, if you're familiar with the HBO series The Wire, which I know I harp on all the time, it should probably go on the uh, Christian Humanist bingo card. Uh, that's what the police and the drug dealers and the teachers and the politicians all face in that series. And like Michael said earlier, uh, this is the vision of tragedy uh, that Art, that um, Alistair McIntyre presents and which, you know, really plays out in this play. Now, as far as, you know, moral judgment goes, and, and I'll, t- I'll talk about this for just a minute and then I'll lateral to Grubbs, but... I, 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 I maintain and I stand by my saying that there are only bad choices for Joe Keller to make before the play starts. Mm -hmm. I think though that in the moral universe of the play, you really can, and you really should indict Joe Keller for making the worst out of bad choices. Right. Right. And, And I mean that, that makes it 
extraordinarily difficult intellectually and morally to read this because you don't get the option of saying, okay, you had a good choice, why didn't you do that? You also don't get the choice of saying all your choices were bad, so it's really not your fault. It's a world in which there are only bad choices, and it really is your fault if you pick the worst one. And by the worst one, you mean letting his business partner take the fall for this. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I didn't even get that far. Thank you, Michael. So, yes, there's actually a string of choices that he makes. Yes. One of them <laughs> is to ship off the cracked heads. The next one is yep. to let his business partner, Deaver, take the fall for it. So, Grubbs, you want to talk about Deaver for a second? Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing that um, in 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 an attempt to evade the no good choices situation, uh, Joe arranges a uh, arranges a con, arranges a deception in order to put the onus of the choice not on himself but on Anne and George Deaver's father. All right. So it's it's not just the I I have no I have no good choices. I can I can choose suffering and loss of business and potential loss of, you know, loss of the war and all of those other consequent loss of the the jobs of all of my employees. All of the consequences that come with saying my processes don't work as his phrase goes. Um I produce bad parts. Or he can take upon himself the, the, the risk of possible death by patching him over and sending out um, flawed parts. Right? Those are two bad choices. But what he does is move, move the choice onto someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, remove himself physically from the sphere of the factory, from the sphere of, uh, of the production of the parts. And he calls in sick. He makes himself inaccessible um, and therefore irresponsible or not responsible. And it's enough to convince courts that his, uh, his subordinate, um, Ann and George's dad, uh, is, is the one who made the, the tough call. And, and Joe isn't. So Joe walks and Ann's dad goes to jail. So it, it, it's it's not just that he's stuck between those two choices. There's a third choice that he makes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he could have been a tragic hero, I mean, which right? is even worse. He could have. He could have. Number one, he could have said, "I can't get this done. You're just going to have to ruin me." And yeah, his it, it may have been bad on his family, but he would have been able to. He would have come out of this play a hero. Mm-hmm. He yeah. could have shipped off the things and then later repented and say, yeah, I deserve to go to prison for that. And he would still be a tragic hero. He still would have done something wrong. He still would have caused pain. But, you know, he he he, he would have walked away admirable. But instead, we're left with no heroes. Mm-hmm. He well, and I mean, just, just to crawl inside his mind for a moment, though, you know, again, in this this tragic milieu... Uh, I mean, it's entirely reasonable to think of Joe as seeing the world as, okay, in the first case, you know, either one of these choices could make the war fail. I might as well take the one that's not going to ruin my family as well. And then in the second, okay, this thing has gone wrong. Someone is going to take the fall for this. If I do, then I can't provide for my family. If someone else does, I can now, I'm not saying that those are right, but again, part of what this play is about is the horizons of these characters, right? I mean, for Joe, you know, his horizon is, I am the provider for this family, so I'm going to do what I have to do to provide for them. The, you know, to, to go to David's discussion earlier, those people who died a half a world away, those are not all my sons. I've got sons. I've got to take care of them. Yeah, I, and I'm, I'm with you. On that decision, right? But when and it, by the way, that's Joe's thing. That's right? Joe's thing. I'm not saying he's right. I gotta, but, but, I gotta keep clarifying that. <laughs> when it comes, when it comes time to frame Deaver, you're no longer dealing with an abstract responsibility versus a concrete responsibility. You're mm-hmm. dealing with, you're dealing with two concrete responsibilities, and you can't even say, well, one is not my, one is not my family because Anne is going to marry into his family. Yeah, and, and I mean, at that point. At that point, he really is just saving himself. I think 
the the first mm-hmm. one still a horrible mm-hmm. decision, still the wrong thing to do, still evil in a, in a real sense. But like it, at least it is the it is balancing a concrete versus an abstract. When he when he sells Deaver down the river, he is he is that's a moral event horizon to use the TV tropes term, you know, <laughs> because at, at that, at that point he, he has looked a, a person he knows and should love in the face and say, no, said, said, no, I'm more important than that. And stabbed them in that face. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, religion plays no role in this play, right? Is it, it usually doesn't in Miller plays, even arguably the crucible. Mm-hmm. But, um, except for mom. Go ahead. Tell me more. Um, Mom has that one little quote, uh, that one little bit where she says that uh, God exists so that certain things can't happen. Yeah, which means God doesn't exist, right? Because every- right. everything that can right. happen happens. Right. Yeah. In this play. <laughs> right. I mean, but but you know, it's 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 not nothing. It's 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 there, but you get, but it's it's definitely. Uh, it's it's a it's a religion that can't bear up. Well, I, I right. mean, it's very Miller's work is all very post Holocaust ethical Judaism, right? God yeah. doesn't exist, or God doesn't care. So what we what we have is the way we treat each other, and so that becomes the new law. And and maybe there's no way to not break that law. I, I will resist yelling my favorite phrase here maybe, maybe there's no way to avoid breaking that law but you can sure break it worse and break it better and and as you say joe just consistently does the worst thing he can do yeah and it, what's interesting to me is for most of the play he's going around saying hey when deaver gets out of prison you all need to forgive him yes <laughs> and you, right and you, you right. know until you realize what's going on you think oh isn't isn't joe a nice guy <laughs> yes yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, even to the point where Anne's persuaded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oof, that's probably the darkest thing to me. That that what? Well, I mean, maybe that's not the darkest thing, but it is super dark because you're you're watch you didn't you didn't watch Joe approve the shipping out of flawed parts. You didn't watch Joe set his friend up. You're just told about it. Um, but you are watching Joe manipulate Anne into taking his side and not her own father's. Well, think about how many people she's lost. Yeah. You know, she lost Larry. She lost her father. She lost this, this surrogate father twice, right? On the one hand, she loses him because he reveals himself to be who he is. And on on the other hand, at the end of the play, she loses him because he kills himself. So he, I mean, he, he has lost the, the chance to be anybody other than what he is existentially speaking. Um, she didn't have a mother, right? The the her, no. at the very least, her mother plays no role. I assume she was dead. I mean, at the end of the at the at the end of the play, Annie is just the one who who has been stripped and stripped and stripped of everything. She loses mm-hmm. another fiance because she can't marry Chris after what what her, what his father has done to her father. Mm-hmm. At least she feels she can't. George feels she can't. Well, he but even Chris is so alienated from his own father. At yeah. that point, yeah. And then but, you got to wonder, given all Chris's talk about responsibility, how much is his reaction to his father responsible for his father's suicide? You well, know, you know uh, what I mean. Yeah, yeah. It's Though a bummer. Mar- yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no post-war optimism for you. <laughs> uh. Well, I think I think one th- one point the play makes. Well, I mean, you you made that point the other day on Facebook, um, <laughs> David. Yeah. I think one point the the play is making is that that what you read as post war optimism is built on number one the terrible deeds of war profiteers, and number two the deaths of innocent people. You, you know, the the only <laughs> thing that allows Joe to be prosperous after the war is the fact that other people have paid the price for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, is, is it a little? I don't know. Maybe this is just me being cynical. But is 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 it is it maybe a little bit um, interesting and worth paying attention to that Arthur Miller really doesn't like witch hunts when they're aimed at communist sympathizers, but is kind of all for it when they're aimed at the guys who run small town factories for airplane parts. <laughs> but. 
is there really a witch hunt in this play? Well, but that, but that's the way that's the way that Joe keeps talking about what's happened to Anne and George's dad. He talks about it in precisely that way. Yeah. Yeah, that when the pressure's on, he suddenly starts blaming other people. Except in this case, Joe actually is a witch. Right. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I know, but that but that's but that's the thing. The 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 the, the witch hunt becomes justified because the witches are real. Yeah. Well, in that sense, David, I think Death of the Salesman is a better play because in Death of a Salesman, there's not there's not a witch. In in Death of a Salesman, <laughs> the system itself is the problem, and and it and and the sort of damage it it wreaks is internal damage. Mm-hmm. And so when not to I guess I'm going to spoil that play too. But come on, you all read it freshman year, <laughs> the, I'm sure. The, the, the Christian humanists spoil every Arthur Miller play. <laughs> Just go through them all. Well, the, it's his, the, sl- the, it's his the, sled. Indeed. <laughs> um but he but but will when willie loman kills himself it's because the the system in which he has found his identity has rotted him out from the inside right for over the course of 40 years mm-hmm. and, and 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 that tragedy to me is so much deeper maybe because it's not a greek tragedy mm. um it, it's a at least to, to me nathan you're you're our you, you you like the uh, the Euripides Miller comparison, so maybe you can correct me. I I I do read it as a Greek tragedy, but finish your point, and then I'll try to make a, a give an alternative. But because it because it's so internal, because the conflict is entirely about the man he feels he should be based on the messages he's gotten from his society, versus the mm-hmm. man he's capable of being by temperament and and talent. Uh, it's it's like a it's like a worm inside an apple. It, it's it's not exactly the apple's fault, and it's not exactly the worm's fault. This is just like what what a world in which there are worms and apples means. Mm. On the other hand, there is a boss that does fire him, so yeah. he is stripped of his ability to age and to retire and to you know have the end of life that the gods promised him. So, I mean, in, in that respect, I think Willie Loman in some respect is, uh, and yeah, why not? I've, I've alienated all sorts of categories of listeners. I'll alienate our feminists too. I, I think that he's analogous in some ways to Medea in Euripides in that he bought into a system. He gave up his existence for a system that then turns on him as soon as there's a younger, prettier alternative that promises more. And yeah, for that reason, you know, he, he self-destructs in a way that is analogous to Medea's slaughtering of her own family because there's no sense to pretending to persist anymore. In that sense, it's not too dissimilar from Heracles, too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Once, once, he's, done, one. once he's done the will of the gods, um, madness comes on and allows him to destroy his family and ultimately himself. But, mm-hmm. you know, Heracles has a happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> ish. <laughs> oh, come on. Ish. Yeah, it's always yeah. Just Hey, for Greek tragedy, find me one with a happier ending than Heracles. Well, yeah. Point Fair granted. Enough. Iphigenia in Tarsus, is, is that the Euripides play with a genuinely happy ending? There, there is it's, one it's Euripides. It's been so many years, Michael. It's been so many years. There is one Euripides play with an actual happy ending. But I, as far as I know, Heracles, I mean, because Heracles ends with Theseus saying, hey, why don't you come live with me? It won't be your family, but you won't be in exile. Uh-huh. So I mean, there, there's something, uh, <laughs> but I mean, in Medea, as I think we talked about in our Euripides episode years ago, Medea ends with her looking at the camera and saying, "And I'm coming to Athens next." Yes, <laughs> indeed. Dumb. So I mean, in, in that sense, uh, in, in that sense, these plays are both quieter than than Greek tragedy. The 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 tragedy that happens is not as threatening to the people in the crowd, not as, as directly threatening. Um, right, and, and right. it is more internalized. Although there's still the sense that the system that destroyed these people isn't done destroying yet. Well, and 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 think about it. It's it is it is precisely threatening. Um, my great grandmother worked uh, worked at a factory that built B fifty two bombers. She was a tiny, tiny woman who got up inside of the gun bubbles because she was small enough to get inside of them and actually do the delicate work. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
what if my grandma got things wrong and people died? You know, you can't you can't make a play like All My Sons in you know 1947, and everyone in the audience who who was you know every man was either across the sea fighting the war or on this side managing the production for the war, right? And half the half the people in the crowd are looking at the other half of the people in the crowd. <laughs> You know, it's this. This doesn't make for good neighbors. This story, <laughs> or maybe it does. I don't know. But I, I, this story doesn't have nothing to do with the audience. Is what I'm saying. Fair enough. Yeah, I uh, I spoke too soon there. You know, and, and I and I think that that's that's something that you've actually got to keep in mind. We look at it and we see it as a period piece because we're safely away from it. But the original audience. They're watching. They're watching something go down in a neighborhood very much like them, involving people very much like them. You know, and how how many managers and workers and factories are remembering the moments where they said, "Eh, good enough," and mm-hmm. how many soldiers are remembering the times their guns misfired or the jeep didn't start or whatever. You know. Lucky he didn't start a riot. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess that's what Miller – that may have been what Miller wanted. I mean he was yeah. quite socialist. Once mm-hmm. again, hat, hat tip to right of spring. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, let's, uh, let's end this episode the way we generally end these single text episodes. Uh, we'll go around the horn. What else is worth talking about in this play? Nathan? One detail that uh, – honestly, I never noticed until this reading of the play. I've, I've probably read it three or four times over the course of the last 20 years. Uh, is the recurrence in very small stretches. Uh, but we mentioned it earlier of uh, Frank and his obsession with horoscopes. And it, it, it occurred to me this time that uh, Frank is just obsessed with a fate that humans have nothing to do with, even as around him a drama about fate that is precisely the unintended fallout of human choice is unfolding. So, I mean, that that's one of those little details that, you know, maybe you're a better reader than I am, listener. I'll, I'll grant that possibility. You might have noticed that right off the bat. Uh, but I really appreciated that this time around in a way that I hadn't before. Yeah, I had not thought got? about that either. I knew, knew to me, too. But this is literally the first time I've ever read it. So, you know. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I plead noob. <laughs> <laughs> um. One of the things that that I picked up on is the way Joe frames. First, he's talking about Ann and George's father. Um, when he's trying to get sympathy for him, he keeps talking about how he's the little man, always scared of loud voices. And you realize later on um, that Joe's actually talking about himself. And there's, um, it's not just the smallness of his sphere. We've talked about Joe's smallness of, of, this, of his sphere of responsibility. But Joe is also taking shelter in the smallness of himself because he assumed, you know, the story that he tells at the end is that, yeah, I made a mistake, but I assumed that someone else was going to catch the mistake and rake me over the coals for it. But by that point, we would have been able to fix it and we could move on. And I'm just a tiny cog in the wheel or just a tiny cog in the machine. I'm just, I'm just the little man. I'm not big enough to be responsible. Um, I, that maybe that's another one of the, it's not necessarily a sin of capitalism, but it is a, it is a sin of management, (laughs) if you will. Mm -hmm. It seems like uh, McIntyre might have something to say about that, too. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that, that's another angle that, you know, might be worth delving into. The first act of this play has this set of ambiguities, of opposites that become confused with each other, and I don't know exactly what to do with it, so I'm just going to throw them out there and see if you guys have any idea. Joe and Kate are arguing. Um, he constantly throws out bags of food 
because he thinks they're garbage. And he says, I don't like garbage in the house. And she says, then don't eat. So you have there a confusion between sustenance and refuse. Mm-hmm. Ten pages later, Joe says when he got out of jail, the kids were very interested in him because he was an expert on jail, because he was a prisoner. And he says, as time passed, they got it confused, and I ended up a detective. So mm-hmm. you, have a, you have an ambiguity between, uh, between criminal and, and uh, cop. Huh. I mean, on, on the one hand, Joe is a person who can't quite keep things straight anyway. He's presented as a rather dim man, although he pays attention. I think is is Arthur or Miller's term in the uh, in the in the uh, the stage notes. But mm-hmm. but that 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 recurring ambiguity, and I'm sure there's more of them. Those are the, the two I have written down in the first act. is is really interesting to me because it suggests a society that suddenly can't tell right from left. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, listeners, if uh, if as I'm sure we did, we missed something you find interesting in all my sons, please send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com or comment on the show notes at christianhumanist.org. Nathan, I believe you're hosting next week. Uh, yes, indeed. Now that the uh, Super Bowl is over, although the uh, <laughs> I'm sure the internet furor over the halftime show and over which quarterback people dislike more. Uh, hasn't ended by the time this drops. Uh, I'm going to honor the coming of spring training, and we're going to do an episode on baseball. Well, we haven't done a sports episode since the first season. I know, right? Well, we are next week. How exciting. Neat. In the meantime, as I said, you can email us at thechristianhumanistgmail.com. The Christian Humanist is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Amberly Copeland is our intern. Until next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grum saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.